So uh, let me begin, as usual, by introducing our three panelists. Uh, Eli Dorado is a research center at the Mercatus, a uh, fellow at the Mercatus Center. He's also director of its technology policy program. Uh, and he's a member of the State Department's International Telecommunications Advisory Committee, which is pretty cool considering he's at the same time working towards his PhD in economics. Uh, Will Luther is assistant professor at Kenyon College. You can tell it's really a good school if they could still get away with calling themselves a college, right? Uh, and uh, he's also one of our very own adjunct scholars here at Cato. Uh, he's an expert on the workings of unofficial currency systems, so naturally he belongs on this panel. Finally, uh, Perry Ann Boring is founder and president of the Chamber of Digital Commerce, which is technically a trade association representing uh, uh, business people with an interest in uh, digital-related uh, uh, enterprises. Uh, she was previously host of a, uh, a TV, a cable TV program called Prime Interest, right? Uh, uh, an international finance TV program, talk about reality TV, and author of a Forbes column called Boring Economics. Uh, somehow, I think that uh, there's no likelihood that anyone would confuse her with Ben Stein, uh, <laughs> a different sort of boring economist. Anyway, uh, uh, welcome to my Welcome to my panel. panel. I'm going to start uh, the questions. We've got several things on, on the agenda. Uh, I want to talk, first of all, about uh, uh, cryptocurrency as currency. Of course, when people think about cryptocurrency, uh, and uh, when they think about Bitcoin in particular, they're thinking about currency and coins. The first big rush of enthusiasm about blockchain technology, as it's now called, was enthusiasm concerning its ability to serve as an alternative to uh, official monies like Federal Reserve dollars. Uh, so I'd like to get things off by uh, 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 going by talking about how that aspect of blockchain technology, which now seems to almost be in danger of being, as it were, uh, 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 overshadowed by some of these other applications. I'd like to talk, though, about where that has gone and where it's likely to go. Then I'd like to talk about, of course, the regulatory stance towards uh, blockchain technology as a currency technology. Uh, finally, I'd like to get around to talking about some uh, interest that regulators themselves, and particularly national monetary authorities, uh, including the Fed, have shown in blockchain technology as something they may adopt themselves and are toying with adopting themselves in some cases. Uh, as a way for re of reforming official currency systems. So that's, that's our, our charge today, is to address uh, as well as we can all three of these uh, issues. So uh, I'd like to start out with the general question. I think I'll direct it towards Will, because I know he's written about this. Uh, so how is the blockchain revolution doing so far as a revolution uh, in currency? I mean, who's using this stuff? How, how widespread is the use and how rapidly is it growing? And is this thing going to 
really uh, eventually start to look like a real rival to official monies, in, in case it isn't in some cases? Yeah, there are, uh, so there are a couple ways we can think about the, um, the number of users of Bitcoin or the, the relative success of Bitcoin. So if we just think about the market capitalization, it's around $6.6 billion at the moment. Um, and on the one hand, that's very impressive. If you compare it to any other cryptocurrency that's ever existed or exists at present, it's unprecedented. Um, a huge market capitalization. By comparison, um, the number two, Ethereum, is around uh, 0.6 billion. And um, I think Ripple is in third at around 0.2 billion uh, market capitalization. And so uh, Bitcoin really dwarfs these others at the moment. Um, in terms of national currencies, that's roughly perhaps a bit larger than the Guatemalan Quetzal. And so um, it's uh, you know, on the scale of a national currency. But one thing you have to keep in mind is that the Guatemalan Quetzal trades in a very small region of the world. Bitcoin is a potentially global currency, so a lot um, a bigger market that it's actually trading over. You can also think in terms of transaction volumes. And so Bitcoin is processing roughly 125,000 transactions a day. Um, by comparison, uh, Visa, another global payment processor, is processing around 150 million transactions a day. And so, um, for one perspective, it's huge by historical standards. We've never seen anything like this. Um, but it's still a really, really small share of total transactions um, or, or uh, um, relatively small uh, compared to other national currencies. Well, could I ask you to elaborate a little bit on the... Uh on the growth trajectory, because I can remember lecturing on this topic, talking about this topic some time ago when Bitcoin was really essentially the, still the only player in the, in the field. So one of the new developments, of course, is that now there are many, which is itself significant, I think. Uh, but, um, but I remember uh, saying at one point, I think there was a statistic that they, they, had, they knew about something like a thousand merchants who were, uh, were known to have started accepting the stuff. I, that must have been just in the United States. Uh, and, uh, and I said something like, well, I bet you in you know, another year's time we could be, see this number be up to 10,000. And sure enough, it, it was. Has that kind of progress continued? Are we are still seeing a more and more rapid uh, expansion or, or, or not? Is there, are there some statistics to tell us uh, how this is going? Well, so it's, uh, so my short answer would be yes. I think that the number of users is growing and it um, uh, doesn't really seem to be slowing from that perspective. But the, it becomes difficult to think about the number of merchants using this currency because one of the innovations that you've seen is a lot of intermediaries enter this space so that even though an individual uh, store or um, you know, someone selling something online perhaps isn't accepting Bitcoin themselves, uh, it's still possible to pay those merchants with Bitcoin. Um, that, that payment would get um, uh, exchanged through an intermediary, and then the uh, end receiver would receive the currency that they want. And so it becomes very difficult to even think about how many um, people are actually um, in a position to, to accept Bitcoin without receiving it because there's been this divorce to some extent um, uh, made possible by the intermediaries. Perry, Ann, you deal with the, the, the business community, including presumably people on the retail side of, of this uh, uh, equation. What, what, what do you hear from them about uh, that, that might give you some indication of their enthusiasm or in growing interest or waning interest for that matter in, 
in uh, uh, treating Bitcoin as an alternative uh, uh, means for uh, payment. So there's some very um, strong business cases as to why merchants would want to accept Bitcoin. Um, any type of merchant who deals in large, uh, large dollar value transactions, uh, there's a lot of benefit because of the chargeback, uh, the elimination of chargeback fraud with Bitcoin because the, the transaction is irreversible. You can't undo it. Uh, it eliminates chargeback fraud. So um, jewelry companies are um, often um, report a huge amount of losses from chargeback fraud. So there's a big incentive. Um, and there are some pretty big um, jewelry uh, retailers who are now accepting Bitcoin uh, because of that. Mm -hmm. um, there's also... You know, weddings being called off and things like that? I mean, <laughs> why is jewelry particularly vulnerable to these chargebacks? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, you can order, say you ordered a, you know, a, a ring on, online, you, you re receive it, the, the person who bought it could then say, I never got it. Um, and then they call their credit card company and the credit card company then um, takes the money out of the, the retailer's account and puts it back in the consumer's account. Uh, they you know, somehow were able to fraudulently keep the ring. Uh, that's chargeback fraud. That wouldn't happen um, in this uh, uh, Bitcoin blockchain uh, ecosystem because it's impossible that you can't reverse the transaction. They're final. Um, and, and this happens. This is a, 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 an issue um, you, in jewelry is, is one example of that. Um, but really for um, uh, you know, another big example of a merchant accepting Bitcoin is Microsoft. Um, they don't accept Bitcoin for all transactions, just most of their Xbox gaming platforms. Um, but I've, I've spent some time um, with Microsoft and went through, you know, you know, what was the reason why you wanted to start accepting Bitcoin? Well, they have app developers all around the world. And for them, if they have, you know, employees or people are paying royalties to um, in many different jurisdictions, in order to pay those their employees or their contractors, doing it through a Bitcoin system brings down the cost significantly, especially if you're just paying people lower, uh, you know, if it's lower amounts, you know, you're paying them royalties on app downloads or, or, or something of that nature. Um, so the, the pace, you know, there's about 100,000 merchants accepting Bitcoin for payment today. Um, there are some challenges to adoption here. One is the accounting issue. So we don't have basic accounting standards for holding digital assets like a crypto cryptocurrency today. So getting an audit on um, you know, a public company or you know, really any company that's holding Bitcoin, um, that can be a challenge. That's one issue that uh, you know, we're working a consortium with um, to overcome. Uh, but there's a number of different reasons why merchants would want to accept Bitcoin. There's a number of different challenges. Uh, the volatility is one of the main, um, I guess, criticisms you get. Um, but uh, you know, slowly and surely we are moving forward. And um, as additional use cases are coming onto the blockchain ecosystem, there are use cases above and beyond currency. But there still is a strong business case for that. George, if you, uh, if you want an illustration of how far we've come in terms of the Bitcoin acceptance universe, a few years ago there was a story, um, I, I can't recall if it was in Vice or Wired, but a journalist um, wrote a story about you know, trying to live on Bitcoin oh, for 20, here. Yes, yeah. on for uh, uh, 24 hours. 
And it was a very interesting story. Today, that would be a very boring story. Um, you don't have to persuade people on the fly to download a Bitcoin app so that you can eat your lunch. Um, you, can, you can get around. It got a little racy, too. Now, there wasn't, it was some years ago, I can't think a couple years ago, I was someplace where they had the Bitcoin ATM. But those haven't exactly caught on, have they? Or have they? Are there? No, there's not very many of those around. There's right? exactly one in Columbus, Ohio, where I Okay, live. yeah. So that's one, that's a negative piece of evidence on the spread of Bitcoin. Eli, what about the technological, what technological hurdles, if any, uh, are, are uh, important in impeding the, the progress? Uh, uh, Perry Ann mentioned the volatility, and we all know that Bitcoin and, uh, uh, and presumably all of the, uh, uh, all of the, uh, 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 cryptocurrencies that aren't there's there's some products out there that actually are deliberately linked to the dollar. Mm -hmm. The others are all volatile in terms of the dollar. Uh, um, and uh, the question is, I, I know that many firms don't actually hold hold Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies at all, even though they deal with them. There are there are ways for them to actually not have them on their uh, balance sheets. So could you talk a little bit about that and also about any other technological issues that that uh, may be impeding uh, the popularity, of the limiting the popularity of these alternatives, or technological developments that may make them more popular in the, in the near future? Sure. I, well, I think the name of the game in, in currency in general is network effects, right? And so building up uh, the network effects is going to, um, is going to make Bitcoin more, not only more popular, but more stable over time uh, in terms of the value that it holds. And so I, you know, we've already seen the volatility go down as as the use of the network has has gone up, although it's still um, fairly volatile. Uh, I, I keep track of this stuff, and I think over the last 30 days, it's been actually less volatile than gold. So that's uh, neat, neat to see. Um, but I think really building out the use, number of use cases. Um, one thing that I'm really excited about is machine-to-machine -machine payments. So. Um, Right now, there's no way um, for you know your toaster to own a dollar. Um, there is a way for your you know your toaster could own Bitcoin and and transact directly. You know maybe uh, buy. I, I don't know why I picked toaster, but uh, you could pick you know buy electricity directly from the wall socket. So if my toaster gets enough Bitcoins, it, it could just quit on me or something. <laughs> yeah, yes, it could, could retire. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but there there are there are interesting companies that are that are working on uh, you know APIs for machines to be able to talk to each other and transact directly without you know without having just like keys to your bank account and, and transacting on your behalf. It, you could instead give your give your you know your car an allowance for gas or or whatever, and um, and it could transact directly. So I think I think uh, that's the kind of use case, certainly in the U.S., where we have you know reasonably stable financial system most of the time. Uh, that's that's the kind of thing that you need to to grow the market and uh, increase sort of adoption. And if if you know if the Internet of Things vision comes to fruition and, and there are billions of devices around us and they're all transacting in Bitcoin, then I think there's a compelling reason for uh, humans to jump onto that those network effects. So we can have driverless cars one day that drive themselves to the gas station. And fill up. Fill up, pay. And you pay back, them for a ride. And come back home. Yep. And you can also you pay, don't pay the car ahead of you to let you pass. Oh. For efficiency on the roadway. There's something. It reminds me of uh, in the Soviet Union, people paying other people to get in line for them. Uh, so you mentioned, 
We're going the other direction. Yeah, no, th this is better, yeah. Uh, you mentioned, <laughs> Eli, you mentioned banks, and I think banks are, are sort of an elephant in the room when it comes to Bitcoin. A lot of people see uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as an alternative to banks, but as an economist, I, I, have it har I have a hard time thinking of it only that way in the sense that, you know, Bitcoin is a basic currency. All cryptocurrencies are what economists call base currencies or final currencies. They're, they're, they're their own little monetary standards, as it were. And, of course, the, the, the tendency throughout history is for such standard monies to, to become something that banks deal with by uh, issuing their substitutes, their IOUs, and getting involved in fractional reserve lending, holding reserves of uh, the actual base money. So, uh, and, and this, of course, is a boon to consumers in the sense that despite the risks involved, which we all know too well, uh, there are many advantages uh, to, to having uh, banks. And some of those advantages actually aren't present in the case of of cryptocurrencies, because all the bookkeeping is in the cryptocurrencies already, whereas banks, when they were dealing with gold, for example, were providing all these bookkeeping services, which was one of the attractions of the bank-issued substitutes. But there are other advantages, too. At least there could be, you could earn interest on your Bitcoin balances or your other cryptocurrency balances. So will the lack, uh, will, uh, uh, right now, there don't seem to be much prospects, many prospects for regulators allowing bankers to, to create Bitcoin banks. What, is there something on the horizon that might change that? And if not, is that going to put some pretty tight limits on just how far this al these alternative monies can develop, particularly in, in the developed part of the world where people are used to dealing with banks? I don't know who to pick on for this, but anyone want to jump in? Well, I'll take a step. I don't think that the, I mean, I, I don't think that the regulators will allow it anytime soon. And But I don't think that the, that's the primary barrier. I think the primary barrier is uh, Bitcoin is not being used as a medium of account at all, right? And so you can't have uh, a Bitcoin-denominated bank account and, and, and receive interest on it if you're not even willing to use it as, as, as your unit of account. Uh, nobody's going to um, take out a mortgage loan you know, for 30 years uh, with, with the Bitcoin balance on it because you have no idea how much you're going to end up paying. So I think, that's, I think that that's the biggest challenge right now is that um, while we are seeing adoption as a, as a medium of exchange and a medium of settlement, uh, we're, we're still a very, very long ways away, uh, both for volatility and, and for you know, the benefits of a centrally managed money supply uh, counter-cyclical benefits, um, you know, we're very, very long way away from anybody using it as a medium of account. But this, this seems to be an important issue. It's true that we've been living in a low interest rate environment for many years now, uh, and it might even seem like that's it. We're never going to have to see interest rates, uh, uh, we're never going to see interest rates go up uh, substantially any longer. Yeah, and if that's true, of course, uh, Bitcoin uh, and other cryptocurrencies that earn no interest while they're held uh, don't suffer much of a disadvantage. But what's going to happen if interest rates do generally increase? Isn't that going to be a problem in the competitiveness of blockchain currencies as exchange media to the extent that someone has to be holding these and therefore someone has to be incurring that zero nominal return that 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 is built into their technology unless someone banks on them, so to speak. 
So, Will, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so if you think about a bank um, being an institution that takes in deposits and makes out loans, um, we, you know, in the Bitcoin community at the moment, we really only see the take-in deposits aspect. And so a lot of the intermediaries that I mentioned earlier will take uh, deposits, and they may even give you a reduction in fees if you're paying another depositor at that particular uh, intermediary. Um, but there's not really any making out of loans here. So from that perspective, uh, I think you're right. What about the volatility now? Uh, uh, from a macroeconomic perspective, uh, some people think uh, a, good, a good money, a good standard money ought to be stable in value, certainly ought to be relatively stable. A lot of people would love to see, and I think initially in this cryptocurrency development, a lot of people uh, looked forward to the possibility of uh, Bitcoin or something like it becoming a true rival monetary standard. So um, uh, the question I have is, could a crypto, I'll ask it hypothetically, uh, because we've already talked about how things are progressing. And, could a cryptocurrency make a good standard money? Uh, Bitcoin uh, is going to be issued up to a total limit of 21 million coins. A few decades from now, we'll be approaching that limit. That's an odd sort of situation because the supply of the stuff can never grow again beyond that. It suggests that if it caught on, it would be somewhat deflationary. Can you, can you comment on the, the macroeconomics of a currency of this kind? Can, uh, 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 how good could it get or how, what, pro, what kind of cryptocurrency would it take to have something that everyone could use that could displace all other monies and that would be a good form of money? There's a couple different topics and arguments. Um, it's a very layered question. Um, one thing I would say up front is, um, from the industry's perspective, no one's trying to overthrow the U.S. dollar. No one's trying to re necessarily recreate our monetary system here in the United States. Um, it's more about having choices, consumers having choices. So consumers should have the right to use whatever they want to exchange goods and services, whether it's salt or pork bellies or gold or silver or paper um, or some crypto digital asset. Um, and as uh, we see the, the, the monetary um, uh, uh, sources that be around the world as they continue to change, I mean, I greatly think that during my lifetime we will see some kind of monetary restructuring just because of how leveraged we are, which is a point that's been talked about a little bit today. Uh, consumers are going to need uh, some other type of asset to hold on to their, their wealth and their value. And I think there is an argument there for these types of technologies. That's more on the currency side. On the other side, and what we're seeing with a lot of companies that we work with, is that it's not necessarily the currency use cases that are being are the most successful business models. A lot of the companies that are driving forward and really um, pushing the edge here are enterprise software companies. And they're uh, really more B2B uh, back-end um, infrastructure plays. So where I see the direction of this technology really having any implication on monetary policy would, you know, hypothetically at some type of central authority, whether it's the DTCC or, um, or a central bank, having this be uh, a piece of the technology on the back end that consumers uh, may or may not ever have to touch or ever have to interface with. 
Uh, I think for macroeconomic stability concerns, uh, we want a money that uh, the supply of which will expand when demand increases and contract when demand decreases. And Bitcoin doesn't do that um, in and of itself. But uh, this kind of takes us back to what you were raising earlier in terms of the banking system. Uh, I know you've written a bit on um, freezing the monetary base and uh, allowing banks to use that as reserves. And so um, if banks were taking in deposits and making out loans, um, that is if they were uh, issuing some other medium that was denominated in Bitcoin, then perhaps we could get some flexibility of the money supply that way. Um, but it, it, we're not doing that at present. Uh, and so Bitcoin in and of itself, I think, um, as long as we're primarily using that base money for transactions, it doesn't uh, bring about macroeconomic stability. Now, does that mean that we couldn't devise some other cryptocurrency that does bring about macroeconomic stability? I wouldn't go that far. I think that we um, could think about alternative supply mechanisms. Some cryptocurrencies have. Um, New Bits is a cryptocurrency which has a supply mechanism that um, adjusts to ensure a, a peg against the dollar. And so um, that doesn't promote macroeconomic stability so much as the stability of an exchange with the dollar. And it's um, done a pretty good job of doing that over its, uh, I think it's been in operation a little over a year now. And so it has a good track record for a year. Um, for what that's worth. <laughs> and it preserves um, the other advantages of, of, of cryptocurrencies. Still get the payments um, uh, processing technologies that you get with uh, Bitcoin, mm-hmm. though um, you know, it's less liquid than Bitcoin because there are smaller. fewer users, yeah. few, a smaller network. Um, but it at least gives us one potential uh, avenue that we might pursue for thinking about alternative ways to govern the supply of these uh, cryptocurrencies. I can think of a couple different ways that you might uh, govern the supply to build on what Will is saying. So one would be that you have you, you have a an authority of some sort, essentially the, the cryptocurrency central bank that can issue a signed cryptographically signed statement, issuing uh, adapting the money supply. Right. So so the money is added to the system every with every new block, and they could vary the rate uh, if they issued a signed statement, and then. You know, the question then is, does it have to be the National, Mon Authority, National Monetary Authority that's doing that? Or can it, we have competition in, in, uh, in essentially conducting monetary policy? So that's, that's one way to do it. I think the more interesting way um, on, on uh, other platforms, on in Ethereum, um, there's a project called Augur that is building uh, event futures, um, generic, uh, generic sorts of uh, futures. And so one future uh, contract that you could have is uh, a trillionth of GDP. You know, so, what, so what, is, what is GDP going to be uh, you know, next year? And so you could trade a token representing one of those contracts uh, worth a trillionth of GDP and just denominate your, uh, your bank account or your, um, your mortgage or whatever, your salary in trillions of GDP. And then, so you're still using Bitcoin as the medium of exchange, maybe, but then you're uh, representing value in, in, in those other tokens. And that would be a way to do a counter-cyclical money supply without, um, you know, without too much mucking with the system. The, the question's been broached, and, and uh, we have just 10 minutes before we open up for a Q&A, about the potential role of, of uh, blockchain technology in official monetary systems. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, 
there have been some efforts on the part of uh, official monetary authorities that I'm aware of, and probably are others as well, uh, to uh, explore and even begin experimenting with uh, blockchain technology. I know that the Bank of England has been very interested in, in this. Uh, I believe the Bank of Canada had uh, an initial program some uh, a year or two ago that it abandoned, but maybe getting back into it. What was it? Mint chip or something like that. And that the, I know that the New York Fed, uh, or rather the Federal Reserve uh, uh, Board, has been uh, uh, undertaking a project at the New York Fed. What is it that central banks are trying to get out of the blockchain technology? Let's first ask, address that question, and then let's talk about what they ought to or could be doing with this technology or what we'd like to see them do. So what are they up to right now? Well, so um, the official statement from the Federal Reserve, I guess we could consider that uh, the the, um, the conclusion of a white paper that was released in January of 2015 where they, they look at these items they call um, digital value transfer vehicles. Um, you can just say cryptocurrency. Uh, these digital value transfer vehicles, they conclude that the technology is not sufficiently mature, but they're going to keep an eye on it. Now, um, in you know, less formal channels, um, in the blogosphere, you have... Uh, folks like David Andofados, the vice president of the St. Louis Fed, writing on his private blog, so I'm sure that's not a statement um, endorsed by the Federal Reserve System, um, about uh, FedCoin. And uh, Andofados' argument is basically, you know, FedCoin or a cryptocurrency that's issued by a central bank could do everything that Bitcoin does, but it has an advantage, that advantage being that um, it could ensure convertibility one for one with uh, the Fed's um, uh, uh, paper currency and electronic reserves. And so um, Andalfado basically wants to get the, or has at least considered the desirability of getting the, um, the payment uh, technology benefits of Bitcoin without the instability of the exchange rate with the dollar that uh, Eli was talking about earlier. That makes me want to ask both Eli and Perianne, from the consumer's perspective and from a technology perspective and a business perspective, I mean, the, the great appeal of Bitcoin is people, people feel safe. They feel like their, their, their privacy, such as it is, is preserved. Of course, the blockchain isn't entirely anonymous, as Jerry explained, but there is an element of anonymity to it. On the other hand, uh, a cryptocurrency managed by Big Brother it's himself <laughs> in the shape of one of these central banks would, would seem to be, at least on the face of things, a rather contrary proposition. What's your take on this? I mean, would, would it be a popular alternative? Yes, it would have a stable, it would be fixed to the dollar, it would be official dollars in effect. But can that make up for the stigma uh, of being uh, uh, associated with central bankers and, and uh, the government, given the, the origins of, of crypto, the cryptocurrency movement. Is that, is that likely to be a problem? Yeah, uh, I think yeah. it's a heavy lift to say that the Fed's just going to come along and, and say, oh, we're going to have our own cryptocurrency now. Um, you know, where we've seen a lot of adoption has actually been Latin America, where there are capital controls. And the reason people are adopting cryptocurrency is to evade the capital controls. And, and that presumably is going to be impossible with um, 
you know, with Fedcoin or, or uh, some, some other state-backed cryptocurrency. So that, That's a marketing problem. Technically, would it, could it be, in fact, just as safe for people to use in principle? Um, yeah, absolutely. They, they, could, they could make it so, that it so that the only thing that they had control over was maybe, you know, money supply. They, they would no more yeah. be able to identify the individual person. They could, they could design it that way. They could design it. Yes. Yeah. But you'd have to take their word for it that that's what they did. You might be able to see the code even, yeah. So. What about it? Th I think the trend is more towards digital currencies in general, and we're very much going this direction anyways. Uh, a lot of the money supply as it is today is, is, is denominated in digital form. Um, so we already are, and you mentioned earlier, the, the revolution, and I often will ask people, is this a revolution or is it an evolution? And Digital currencies have been around since the 80s and the 90s. This is not necessarily a new concept. What's new today is the distributed ledger aspect. And would a central bank take in the distributed ledger? And I caught up with, with uh, David yesterday. And um, you know, the Fed. This is the same fellow we were talking about at, at the St. Louis of, Fed. Of St. Louis Fed, who's really been a thought leader um, at the Fed on, on these issues. And he said um, he. The central bank's argument is always going to be, we are here to take that ledger, to record that ledger, to hold that ledger, and more than likely it, it would not play out that they would just give that over to a computer. Uh, it also brings in the play, you know, the famous Milton Friedman um, thoughts Absolutely. and quotes about going towards a computer. I personally think this is inevitable that we're going to go to a completely digitized um, currency. Now, will that be put on a distributed ledger? I, I think only time can tell. But uh, realistically, do you really think we're going to be chopping down trees and smashing them to a pulp and calling that money? I don't think so. Um, but if there is a, this very quickly can get into a technological argument. Well, who is going to uh, be the issuer? Who's going to oversee that digital token? Uh, and very quickly, uh, this turns into a monetary discussion, into more of a technical discussion. Who's going to be the operator? Who's going to have the keys? Who's going to have control? Uh, and that's something um, that that's um, you, know, I, you know I think that's something that's going to take time to uh, debate, and I think that's something that should be debated in a public forum, like you know through you know, hearings and whatnot. No, I think it, it bears uh, observing, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, one of, part of the impetus for central banks' interest in this, I know this is true of the Bank of England, is that that they're they're all trying to implement negative interest rates, mm -hmm. and the problem is that with the current paper money, people can just stock it up and at least avoid being charged for owning dollars or pounds in this case. And therefore, they're contemplating how they can get rid of paper stuff altogether so they have uh, only digital alternatives where in principle they could take a little bit of your digital pounds away every month and in fact charge you or pay you negative interest. But they have no reason to steal, they just print all the money they need. No, but, but this is about implementing a monetary policy of negative interest rates and not triggering a massive storage of paper money. So I think that there's this motive. I, I don't suppose we should call it ulterior because it is, the, it is something that's pretty much out there. On the other hand, what I find appealing is the Friedman idea. Milton Friedman proposed years ago, years ago before there was anything like a, even a powerful computer, that you could have a computer take over and print a certain amount of basic dollars every year and, and, and program it and, and, and get rid of the Fed and have a more reliable monetary system. Now, th th this technology could be used for that, but the question is whether they, would, they have no interest in, in doing that. Is, that. is that a fair statement? 
I think we have two things going on at the moment when we're thinking about cash. One is, as you mentioned, that um, you know we may uh, central banks may want to pay negative uh, interest rates, and so that's really difficult to do if you have uh, access to cash. That's also a big marketing problem for them, isn't it? To say, hey, take our currency, so we might be able yeah. to take a little bit away from you every now and then. Huh? The other, and maybe it's just rhetorical because what they want to do is um, engage in a negative interest rate policy, but you're also hearing a lot recently about the uh, criminal elements of cash, and so uh, getting people to switch to a digital currency um, would help them deal with uh, that perceived problem as well. And so I think you're, you're getting this from both angles. One is that there's something that they want to do, and the other is that there's something they want to prevent, and pushing people to digital currencies is one way to do that. Um, if you look, so the interesting ex uh, experiment... So can I, sorry, well, I, how would they make their own digital alternatives to cash less useful to crooks than the private ones? Well, so it depends on whether it's, uh, um, you know, exactly how this ledger is governed. Uh, maybe they have some know your customer aspects or something like that. That, of course, again, is going to make this a non-starter as far as a rival for the mm -hmm. people who, many of the people who find these. Now, uh, well, George, there's, mm -hmm. a, there's an advantage that governments have, though. Well, they can, they can compel you to use yes, it and, and, if you, and force the other stuff out of business. And if you look at Ecuador in the moment, they've uh, issued a, a digital currency at this point, I believe. Uh, they certainly passed the legislation for it. It's a relatively new development, and so I'm not exactly sure where it is in the process. But uh, in offering this new digital uh, alternative, they have also made it illegal to use other uh, cryptocurrencies. And so Ecuador, of course, is dollarized, and so there's some questions about whether or not um, uh, kind of forcing through this digital adoption will ultimately allow them to uh, do away with their dollarization, or uh, perhaps they just want to move from um, a, a relatively costly uh, um, a paper money system to a more uh, digital money system. So there are lots of factors at play, and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years. Let me direct this one last question related to this point to you. Isn't it one of the advantages, though, of uh, blockchain technology that it's not easy for governments to stamp it out and to stamp out these rivals because you essentially have to, wouldn't you have to shut down the internet or something like that to do it? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, uh, it's it's very difficult, if not impossible, to, to shut down a, a, a dominant uh, cryptocurrency, right? So, so the cost of attack uh, against Bitcoin keeps going up. Uh, it's not that the US government couldn't do it. It's that probably like some smaller governments couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the US government isn't motivated to do it. Um, and I think just like what we saw with the internet, the, the free flow of information can, uh, can harm government's interests in some ways. But nevertheless, most governments have accepted uh, the proliferation of, of the internet because it has uh, other benefits, including for them, for their for their tax base and so on. So, um, so I think that I don't I, I don't foresee a world in which uh, governments sort of universally crack down on on cryptocurrency. I think it, I think it's here to stay. Well, all right. Let's give our uh, audience uh, an opportunity to ask some some questions. And I think that's the first hand I see right. There, right, yeah, that's it. And please, uh, please do ask a question uh, rather than make a <clears throat> statement. Monet, the monetary stuff always invites long spiels from the audience. Hi there, my name is Rob Gavallaro from Coin Operated Media here in DC. And my question I have for the panel is about 
Well, specifically about uh, Bitcoin, because it is, it's a decentralized currency that's sort of owned by its user base, not by any governing agency. And um, I'd like to ask, what do you think the rights of the dead are in a system like this? So fast forward 20 years from now, 30 years from now, the earliest purchasers and acquires Bitcoin, uh, some of whom may have uh, disappeared. Maybe they're imprisoned, or maybe they're unable to access their account, or maybe they're, maybe they're dead. Uh, they have assigned no heirs, and their private keys are lost, but their Bitcoins are locked up forever, essentially, at that point. What happens if uh, uh, the consensus at that time is that those coins should be released, that they should be um, escheated to the Bitcoin state and recycled to provide a new block subsidy or perhaps to incentivize some sort of transaction activity? Is this a real uh, a risk for someone who is looking to invest in such a system? You know, that, that question's not really different from just the decision to add new currency to the, to the system. So the consensus of the network at any point could decide we want more uh, Bitcoins to be mined, uh, and then it would be uh, added to the money monetary base. And that's, I think that's no different from a scenario where some private keys are lost, and then they decide later on to, like, do some uh, weird jujitsu to pretend like they got them back. So I think I think that those are. It's just it's just a question of do we want to expand the monetary base again? So it's not not a, not a unique question. I think. Yeah, and I'm an economist, so I don't know too much about morality in general. So uh, <laughs> I probably should stay away from that question. <laughs> Anything on but would certainly encourage investors or consumers or users of the technology to have a plan in place. And uh, uh, as part of the younger generation, we don't often think about that. I actually wrote an article in Forbes about this and about also um, I did a lot of research on like what happens to your Facebook account. Um, when um, when someone passes and uh, Facebook has a very strong policy uh, against that to respect the privacy of the deceased uh, you know and I would hope uh, you know a similar policy or standard would be um, accepted amongst this community as well to respect that and if they didn't assign an error then uh, maybe there was a reason for that um, but we certainly should be thinking about that ahead of time you know, when the government, uh, when somebody uh, misplaces uh, government money, uh, whether it's because they've died and it's been forgotten about or f for some other reason, uh, it, uh, it translates into uh, greater senior gain to the government authorities. In the case of something like Bitcoin, it translates into a somewhat more elevated demand for the money than would it be there. but that becomes enjoyed by all the other holders of Bitcoin. So it's a nice little gift you, you give. It's like having an unwritten portion of your will where you give every Bitcoin holder a little dividend. Yeah, but also keep in mind that while there is a fixed supply of Bitcoin at 21 million, this is a, is a digital currency, so you can denominate it out up to you know, eight decimal points. So you can send a fraction of a penny. Well, of course, now. the dividends can be tiny, teeny-weensy. But anyway, that's what happens to it if, you don't, if nothing else happens to it. It could be worse. Um, next question. I've got one right up here. Brian Broberg from Pennsylvania. Uh, any chance of cryptocurrencies replacing SDRs at the IMF or any other international uh, use? Great question. 
I, I tell you, it's Warren Coates here. <laughs> Warren. If, 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 if they replace SDRs, Warren will not be happy. Because <laughs> that's his baby. I wish you were here to answer, to be one of the people could also answer a question. What are the, oh. yeah. Anybody else on that, though? I mean, may, I, I, no, I don't think we're going to be replacing uh, the SDR uh, with Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. Um, we actually, the Chamber announced today uh, the formation of the Global Blockchain Forum, which is uh, expanding on the international dialogue, um, public policy governing these technologies. Uh, and these are, um, you know, important questions to ask about, you know, how from an international perspective are we looking at this? I think a more realistic point of view would, you know, having a crypto-backed um, asset in a basket, uh, you know, of a fluctuating currency such as an SDR. But it's also going to be part of the network effect and, um, and the demand. And like you said, uh, you can't eliminate these currencies. You would have to shut off the internet to get people to stop using them or to take them out of circulation. So if this is what the markets flock to, then you know, could that be seen as an alternative to something like the SDR? Uh, you know, over time, uh, I, I think it, it, it's possible, likely, probably not as much. Uh, again, I, I look more towards you know, the enterprise um, solution here. Yeah, I wouldn't say Bitcoin in particular, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, lots of institutions um, start thinking about you know using a permissioned uh, distributed uh, ledger, and so I mentioned the Andalfato piece earlier. But another um, uh, uh, blogger who's talked a bit about Fedcoin is J.P. Koning on his blog Moneyness, and if I'm not mistaken, his uh, his first uh, proposal for Fedcoin was just um, replacing Fedwire with a permissioned distributed uh, ledger, and so the Fed's member banks could use this blockchain. Uh, to make transactions, and so that's another settlement. That's a sure. central bank settlement system. So it, uh, it, uh, it's rather like uh, uh, the uh, T zero idea applied to their own settlements. Yeah. So in any of these institutions where you have a ledger um, at the moment, then I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if in a decade we're using some uh, distributed ledger technology to process transactions on that ledger. Other question? Oh, yes, all the way back. I say, if we don't get more questions, I'm going to entertain spiels. <laughs> Hi, it's uh, Peter again. Um, Eli, you, your suggestion of using prediction markets to create the counter cyclical monetary policy was, uh, I thought, really fascinating. Are there other um, this is, of course, it's almost sci-fi, but are there other s schemes in mind for how you could do something in a, in a low-trust fashion rather than empowering someone to just change the supply variable in the core software, use some sort of algorithmic function? Um, there's not one that uh, I know of besides betting markets. I mean, in principle, you could use anything you want as your, uh, as your medium of account. Um, so just choosing a medium of account that is uh, intrinsically uh, has has the cyclical properties that you want to uh, to smooth out the the real prices and and uh, adjust um, adjust real prices so so that you can provide stimulus when you need it. Any of that would work. Um, 
you know, you could also do it. Uh, you could do it algorithmically if you had uh, if you had a direct feed, trusted feed of GDP data, right? So if you had GDP data somehow with some, you know, the term here is an oracle, right? But if you if you had the blockchain consulting an oracle to ask what GDP is, and then using that to decide. Uh, the network deciding how much, how to expand supply. That's another way. You or any other, any other statistic. Any other statistic that you wanted from. to try. Yeah, that's right. The big concern, I, I raised this issue years ago. I wrote a paper on synthetic commodity money in 2011, where I said in, that I thought in principle you could make very clever uh, uh, cryptocurrency algorithms, uh, or at least it seemed to me with my limited knowledge that this ought to be possible. Uh, the idea there was that, um, you know, it's kind of cool if you ask a central banker, what do you think you're trying to do? And he tells you, and you say, well, I can make a blockchain money that'll do that. So what do we need you for? And, um, and I've been told that it is possible. Uh, but the big concern is the reliability of the data, and particularly the, fact, the possibility that the data might get toyed with. Because if the data gets toyed with, it's equivalent to toying with the algorithm. Yep, that's right. Well, there's a, potentially another problem here as well, George, because when you ask the central banker what it is that they're trying to do, maybe they'll give you some crude rule, but in practice they don't stick to crude rules. They Oh, uh, it does, yeah, but if they tell us that's what they wish they could do, then so, we can say, well, now, if, if, you, if you can't stick to it, all the more reason why we shouldn't rely on you. <laughs> yes, but I'm afraid that when they say that that's what they wish to do, that uh, they actually have something a little more elaborate in mind that say, that's what we wish to do in normal times, but we want the option to do something else um, if, uh, <laughs> if we uh, see fit in the moment. Well, you can't get them to admit that we can get rid of them after all, can you? <laughs> uh, time for a couple more questions, I think. One? Follow up, and then we have one down, down here. Let's start here, and then go back to to you. Hi, uh, Mark Hochstein, editor in chief, American Banker. One of the knocks on Bitcoin, uh, going back to the beginning, is that because of the deflationary nature of the currency, that it encourages uh, hoarding. Um, I, I guess I would just be interested to hear the panel's thoughts on. Uh, is hoarding really just a morally loaded term for saving? And, um, you know, is, is, is there some virtue to uh, a, a currency that encourages people to live for tomorrow rather than for today? So, uh, so I remember that when this was going around, and uh, the answer is that the people who are saying that it encourages hoarding don't understand. Uh, they are wrong on the economics. So, so if because Bitcoin is deflationary, you would expect the price to rise now, and there's going to be uh, you know a, a return parity uh, going forward. So I don't think that it, I don't think that Bitcoin is uh, obviously uh, deflationary in the way that they're talking about. Yeah, so it is deflationary in the sense that as there are productivity gains in the future, the, uh, we would expect the purchasing uh, power of Bitcoin to rise. Um, but that's not especially problematic for, you know, in terms of macroeconomic stability. Uh, in fact, we might um, like that property um, quite a bit. Uh, the, um, well, I guess I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, the, the, there is something, though, that distinguishes... I think, in general, uh, uh, a currency that appreciates gradually 
uh, can be a good thing, particularly the rate of appreciation is tied to productivity. And it does encourage savings, but, but in a normal currency system, that means it's encouraging investment because most of your money, there's some intermediation going on. It's bank-created substitutes, not gold, for example. Uh, but if you have uh, an appreciating digit, uh, blockchain money and therefore people want to save more, the only thing they're investing in is, is that, that blockchain stuff itself. It is not any more intermediation. It's not like there's going to be more lending and productive investment of that sort going on in, as a result. So it is a little bit different than when you have a Bitcoin a bank just goes up. And then, it becomes, and then, Bitcoin itself becomes more valuable and you have more investment in Bitcoin or whatever, but you're not seeing an increase in overall intermediation, productive lending in general. Well, to shed some more light on the hoarding comment, uh, most of the companies that accept Bitcoin for payment, they don't ever touch the Bitcoin. They don't ever hold it. Most of them use a payment processor like a GoCoin or BitPay or Coinbase, and they actually give the coin to that payment That's processor right. yeah. and they take the dollar. So there's a complete other side to that you know, hoarding comment as well, that while some individuals may decide to hold on to it, uh, a lot of the businesses won't even touch it. And uh, a follow-up in the back, or another new question, either way. This struck me that um, when you were talking about um, algorithmic monetary policy, I suppose it's fascinating that you're suggesting decoupling the unit of account from the store of value and the medium of exchange. Um, can you imagine problems with that decoupling, or is it just something that user interfaces fix. Uh, I think it's a fascinating idea, and I, th I think it's one that most people who think about the dollar is all three of those things don't mm -hmm. usually give much thought. Yeah, I think it's important to, when you're talking about money, to think about which are the functions of money that you're talking about, right? So, uh, you know, of course, there's unit of account. Some people s distinguish between unit of account and medium of account, and then there's medium of exchange, medium of settlement, and store of value. So I, I would count five uh, services that money provides, and I think that, uh, the, the decoupling, uh, there's a really interesting literature on this in, in monetary economics, and I'm, I'm, I really like the idea of decoupling, and I'm, I think it will happen, and we, I look forward to it. Uh, I think it'll be a better world. But, um, <clears throat> but that's, uh, you know, people have assumed for a long time that, medium ha uh, that money has to be this good that provides all of the services at once, and there's, there's no reason for that. Um, you, could, you could very easily uh, split them up, I think. Well, certainly at the moment, uh, Bitcoin isn't used in most transactions yep. as a unit of account. Yep. Uh, so even if it's being used as a medium of exchange or a medium of, of settlement, it's not being used as a unit of account. Most prices are in dollars or whatever your local currency. And it's important to recognize that traditional, you know, most of traditional uh, monetary economics is concerned about with the economics of the unit of account, not with the economics of the medium of exchange. Right? There's a little bit of liquidity stuff that maybe applies. But, but most of it is looking at the price of the unit of account and how that changes and causes macroeconomic distortion. You know, Eli, you, may, you raise a point that makes me want to uh, make a, a complementary, I think, point, which, which is that we're not only used to thinking about a monetary system where the same stuff is the medium of account that is the medium in which prices are uh, expressed and accounts kept. 
uh, and the medium of exchange. We're also used to thinking about monetary systems where an entire nation is all using the same money. What, what fascinates me and what I don't pretend to know at all is uh, the, the economics, the macroeconomics of having lots of different currencies where everybody picks their own, there's no one thing. What, is, what, what would it mean to be, have a macroeconomic, a monetary crisis in that system? It certainly wouldn't mean the same thing, uh, but a simple, uh, you know, if you think simply in terms of diversification, you know, some of these monies are not working so well and others are, well, isn't that better than having them all go kerplop at the same time? Um, I don't, I think, do we have a short question in the back? Okay, all right, let's, let's take a chance on him. If, he, if he's lying, we'll get him back later. One short question, and then we'll, we'll be taking a break. Hi, thanks for fitting me in. Uh, my name is Chris Condon. I had a question on the last part of the panel discussion where you were talking about uh, governments being able to shut down cryptocurrencies. How would they actually be able to do that? Uh, you said like big governments could, but small ones couldn't. Like, How physically could they do that? Well, they could certainly shut them down or at least uh, make it very difficult to transact in uh, brick-and-mortar transactions. Right, they just uh, do much the same thing that the FBI does when it wanted to capture someone who was trading illegal substances on the Silk Road. You need to show up where the packages are delivered, or you go to the store that's advertising that it will accept a particular cryptocurrency and you uh, penalize them. And so um, certainly you could have quite a bit of success, at least it would seem to me, in shutting down those transactions if you really wanted to, um, since most transactions are ultimately going to take place in a physical space. I think the other way is you, you say the NSA purchases a lot of Bitcoin mining machines and they set them all up and they accumulate more than 50% of the power of the network and then they start double spending uh, and, and degrading the value of, of Bitcoin uh, from an integrity perspective. And then nobody would want to use it anymore and then the network could just get cheaper to attack because uh, the value is going down. So that would be, that would be the other way. It's, you know, if I were if I were if I were an evil dictator, and this is this is what I would do. So, you, you're the that's the Bitcoin equivalent of North Korean supernotes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did you want to? I, was, I don't. I don't think it's very likely that governments are going to try to take 51 percent of the, the mining. It's a power. pretty pretty expensive proposition. That's an assignment for Spectre. <laughs> Maybe even more so than that. I think we're out of time. Thank thanks to our uh, panelists for a very interesting discussion. Thank you very much.